Well, thank you, Dr. Tumlin, for that warm welcome. And I'm sure that everybody that stands behind this pulpit says this, but it is a joy and a blessing to get to be with you all today. This institution will always have such a warm place in my heart for the many ways that God met me here and shaped me. And I know you don't take that for granted either. Now, having said that, I want to be honest. I heard some amazing messages in these kind of lectures, and I heard some that were sleep-inducing. <laughs> and I can think of one in particular where my now wife, then girlfriend, and I were up in the balcony, and I was elbowed multiple times because I was falling asleep. So <laughs> balcony people, you are on high alert. I'll be watching you. So especially in light of that, I know what I'm about to ask you to do is risky, and I know we're in the middle of the semester, I suspect fatigue has set in, but I want to invite you to use your imagination with me. You can close your eyes if you want to, but I'm watching you. I will not close mine, so don't fall asleep, all right? I want you to imagine with me for a minute, imagine that it's first light on Easter morning, the sun is just breaking over the horizon as the birds are singing for joy at the dawn. You've spent the whole night in prayer and fasting for this moment. In fact, you've been in preparation for nearly three years. And when you first heard about this new religious sect called Christians, you didn't really think much of it. There's always a new zealous group causing a stir in the empire. But then you met two of these little Christs and something about them captivated you. You were astounded to discover that they worship an executed rabbi as the one and only Lord who's been raised from the dead and will one day return. The more you learned about this Jesus, the more you wanted to follow him. After your two friends vouched for your sincerity, you were allowed to come to their gathering on the first day of the week. And for nearly three years now, you've worshiped with this community as you've learned more and more about the faith in preparation for this moment. And now the day has come. You weren't exactly sure what to expect. I mean, you know the vows you're going to be asked to make, and you're more than eager to make them. After spending the night in prayer with others who will be baptized, early in the morning, you're brought to the edge of flowing water. The pastor instructs you to face west as darkness still lingers in the distance. Do you renounce Satan and all his works? You're asked. I renounce them, you earnestly respond. You're then asked to turn and face east. The sun now shines brightly on your face as the pastor asks you to disrobe and step into the rippling water. Your heart is pounding. The moment you've been waiting for is here. Do you believe in God? You're asked. And you respond, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. As you conclude, you're plunged into the water. You catch your breath as you're raised up. And do you believe in Jesus Christ? And you answer, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of, of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. And again, you're plunged under the water. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? 
I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And for a third and final time, you're submerged in the water. And then the pastor, along with the assistants, lift you up and help you to the other side of the water's edge. And there you're greeted by other members of the church who drape a white robe around you. And then the pastor takes out a vessel filled with scented olive oil, and the smell of the air permeates the air around you as the vessel is open. The pastor pours the oil over the top of your head, and as it flows down on your face and even in your mouth and your shoulders, you hear him say, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're now led into the sanctuary to be welcomed by the entire community. The scene is somewhat of a blur. The white of your robe, the dazzling rays of the early morning sun, the permeating smell of the oil, the angelic sounds of the choir singing, smiling faces, strong hugs, kisses on the cheek. You are now a member of this body. But the initiation celebration is not over yet on this Easter morning. As the last of the community welcomes you, the pastor greets everyone, offering up thanks, remembering God's mighty acts in Christ. And then, for the first time, you come to the table, you eat the bread, you drink the wine, you have crossed over the Jordan River. Welcome to the promised land. Now this or something very close to it, would have been what baptism looked like for early Christians. And the church of the first four centuries often used two central metaphors when speaking of baptism. First, it's a tomb. Now, I'm a nerd, and that's going to come out here. And one of my favorite things to do is look at old pictures of baptismal fonts, all right? This is what you get to do when you get a doctoral degree in worship studies. It's, it's wild times. But there's a reason why many baptismal fonts were shaped like sarcophagi or crosses. You see, the early church took seriously Jesus' statement, if anyone would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. Now, of course, this is a theme that runs consistently through Paul's writings. All of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. I have been crucified with Christ. You have died And it's a convicting reminder to us that to truly follow Christ is a most costly thing. Now, for reasons that are probably obvious, I didn't have you envision this, but the early Christian practice was to baptize adults naked, or as we say in my home state of Alabama, naked. (laughs) Some of you know what I'm talking about. Let no foreign object accompany you into the water, reads one early document on baptism. So don't miss the truth behind this. These early Christians, for them, it wasn't like you had one Instagram account for your mama to see and another Snapchat ID that you'd never wanted to know about, right? In our baptism, we come as we are, laying down the entirety of our lives before the cross. We stand at the water's edge, holding nothing back, hiding nothing, leaving the old behind. This is the key point. Those of us who are baptized into the death of Christ, no longer live for the world. Do you renounce Satan and all of his works? This is the ancient question asked to the baptismal candidate before she entered the water. Do you? 
Do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness? Do you renounce racism and privilege that dehumanize others? Do you renounce unbridled consumerism? Do you renounce getting ahead at all costs? Do you renounce objectifying another made in the image of God for your own pleasure? Do you renounce Satan and all of his works? It's easy to renounce the ones that we think we can get rid of easily, right? We are those who have died to sin. The baptismal font, first, is a tomb. Secondly, it's a womb. Here again, Paul's words from Romans 6. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In our baptism, we descend with Christ to die and we are raised to new life in him. You have died, Paul writes, and your life is now hidden with God in Christ. St. Cyril of Jerusalem puts it this way. That water became your tomb, but also your mother. Your birth coincided with your death. What a strange and wonderful thing. We did not literally die. We were not literally buried. We did not literally rise again after being crucified. We experience these things in symbols and representations, but salvation we experience literally. Christ was really crucified and really buried and literally rose again. And all of this he did for our sake. So that by sharing in his sufferings, in imitation, we might gain salvation in truth. What unmeasured love this showed for humankind. Christ received the nails in his pure hands and experienced pain and grants me salvation through sharing his experience without the pain and the toil. Now, if you would have been there in the fourth century, you probably would have heard an amen after that. That's a good word. You see, baptism is a sacrament that defines our identity. And it answers a question that's at least as important as who are you? It answers definitively the question, whose are you? And the answer to this question given to us in our baptism is that you are one who has died and has risen with Christ Jesus. Our 10-year-old uh, Eli <clears throat> was baptized as an infant. And if infant baptism weirds you out in light of what we're looking at today, let's talk afterwards. I'm happy to geek out anytime about this. I don't yell. I just like to talk about it, right? Um, <clears throat> in his baptism, we committed to remind him throughout his life of this central truth of his identity. So even before he could talk, we began practicing a little bedtime liturgy that concluded with us signing him with the cross on his forehead and whispering, Eli, you belong to Jesus. And you know how this goes, right? Kids are smart. And he had just turned two when one night after we finished, without any prompting, he immediately lifted up his little finger and made the sign of the cross on my forehead and whispered back, and Daddy, you belong to Jesus. This is like our 10-year ritual. And sisters and brothers, this is the truth that we are to remind each other of every time we gather as the body of Christ. We desperately need to be the type of community that speaks these words of identity to each other. You have died. You no longer live for the forces of wickedness. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You belong to Jesus. 
There's one other reality that the church of the early centuries teaches us about baptism. And that's this. Not only are the waters of baptism a tomb and a womb, but they're a portal to the new creation, to the kingdom of God. Now, admittedly, (laughs) nerd alert, admittedly, this can get really speculative or esoteric quickly. So hang with me here, all right? Jesus announced in his earthly ministry that the kingdom of God is at hand, right? In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I suspect many of us are aware of this, but in many of our traditions, heaven is envisioned as an eternal kind of nebulous realm somewhere completely separate from our present reality, right? Heaven is up there somewhere, and one day this earth will be destroyed, and God will fashion a new heavenly creation. In the church of the early centuries, however, this relationship between the new creation and our present time was a bit more fluid. If you've read any N.T. Wright, you know this. N.T. Wright, among others, has helped us reclaim this earlier perspective. Rather than thinking of heaven and earth as two separate realities, Christians in the early centuries thought of them as two spheres of influence. Because, so two spheres of influence, God's eternal realm and this earthly realm that God created. And because of what God has done in Christ, these two realms now overlap in this present age, and heaven is breaking through in our midst. While the ultimate hope rests on the moment when Christ the King returns in glory, and the two realms are fully united and fully joined, until then, Christians are commissioned in our baptism as ambassadors of the new creation in the midst of a still-fallen world. Do you get that? Y'all, that is wild, incredible stuff. In your baptism, you are commissioned as an ambassador of the new creation. Now, let me offer this somewhat tenuous analogy, and if I was hiding the fact that I'm a nerd, this is going to blow my cover once and for all, but I'm going to push my luck here. All right, now my wife and I have debates about whether or not anybody still knows this. Any of you seen this, this show before? All right, a few, and I think it's coming back out. It's always supposed to come out around Halloween, and if you haven't, and you know the 80s or wish you were born in the go geek out. It's so much fun. But um, if you haven't, there are no spoilers here, all right? So don't worry, you don't have to plug your ears, but I want you to at least track with this. Um, for those of you that haven't seen the show, the plot rests on the idea of two distinct realms, the normal world and the upside down. You got it. Now, the upside down is this dark place that resembles, in a twisted way, the normal world. You don't need, no spoil. you do not want to get stuck in the upside down. Bad things happen in the upside down. The key point to this story is that these two realms overlap and can mutually influence each other. Events that happen in the upside down can affect the everyday lives of the good people of Hawkins, Indiana. And throughout the town, there are these thin places that allow the characters to go between the two realms. All right? Now stay with me here. For Christians, we hold to a similar idea of these two distinct realms that overlap, but for us, the sphere of influence to our normal world is not the upside down, but the right side up. The right side up, this new creation where God's shalom reigns, the sick are healed, the dead are raised, the prisoner is set free, the poor feasted a banquet fit for royalty, God's right side up where the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. In our baptism, we enter into the realm of the right side up and see the world 
as it was meant to be. Through our baptism, we function as emissaries of this new creation in the midst of a broken world. And every time we gather as the people of God, the baptized community, our vision of the right side up should become clearer and clearer. A tomb, a womb, and a portal. Now, I never cease to be astounded with this perspective of the early church on our baptismal identity. And what if we took seriously the vows made at our baptism to renounce Satan and all his works? Maybe you were baptized as an infant or in a community that didn't use those words, but you still belong to those vows. What if we wrapped our lives around our identity as those who belong to Jesus? What if we woke up each morning holding fast to our mission as ambassadors of the new creation? See, the problem for me is I forget, and I don't think I'm the only one. Too often, my vision of the right side up gets obscured by competing visions casted by lesser gods. And when this happens, I forget the truly peculiar, strange nature of the kingdom of God. I forget that God's right side up is decisively political, but defies being identified with a single party. As ambassadors of the right side up, we're called to pray for those in authority while opposing Christian nationalism. I forget that my baptismal identity marks me as an agent of change in the world, resisting evil, injustice, and oppression, while never failing to remember that the world's ultimate hope is in a crucified, risen, and returning Savior. And too often, I forget that I'm baptized into one body, and not everybody in the body looks or thinks like me. I forget that I'm called to bear the burdens of my brothers and sisters, so many of whom face struggles that I and my white privilege will never face. And too often, I forget that even in the most seemingly mundane interaction, I'm called to reflect Jesus to a broken and hurting world. I forget that I'm marked as an ambassador of God's new creation. And this is another reason why I worship with the community of God. I need to continually remember my baptismal identity. About two years ago, I drove with my wife to a small shop outside our home in Seattle where she got her first tattoo. We met at Asbury. We live in Seattle. They don't let you into the city unless you have a tattoo, right? (laughs) So she asked me to come with her for support in case the pain was too much. And it turns out that once you've birthed a baby, getting a tattoo is kind of a snoozer. So she was fine. After the tattoo artist had finished up his work and stepped out of the room, my wife kept asking me how it looked. Oh, it looks great, I reassured her. She had designed a a single word to be tattooed on her upper left shoulder in the back. Just one word, beheld, right? No spaces, B-E-H-E-L-D, beheld. It's significant for her for several reasons. First of all, she's an artist, and engaging the world and God with her eyes is really important to her. And secondly, one of her favorite scripture passages comes from the Gospel of John chapter 1. We have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. You may know the old King James Version says, we beheld his glory. And this word beheld conveys multiple meanings for my wife. Not only have we seen or beheld God in Christ, but this same God sees and loves us. And of course, this word play works out nicely. You can put a space and be held. God holds us and transforms us in his grace. 
That's a good message on our baptismal identity summed up in a single word. So everybody go get your tattoo and you can come visit us in Seattle, right? <clears throat> but as we drove back, the problem became immediately clear. Shannon couldn't see it for herself because it's on her up, back of her upper left shoulder. And after about a dozen times of answering the question, how does it look? I finally asked her, why didn't you just get in on a place where you could see it for yourself? And it's simple, she said. I wanted a reminder that sometimes I need others to point out my identity in Christ, even when I can't see it for myself. I need others to remind me that I am beheld by God. I was floored. And the truth is, we all need to be reminded of our truly strange, peculiar identity given to us by God in Christ. And so this is what we're going to do as we close. Some of you may have experienced baptismal reaffirmation. And I just want to say a quick word about this. We're not re-baptizing. We're reaffirming our commitment to live as the baptized community, right? Now, there may be some of you here today who were never baptized, and that's totally okay. Please don't feel obligated to participate in this. Um, we're going to just invite you to come as you want. Regardless, you are beheld by God, right? And I want you to consider what God may be saying to you regardless. But if you want to talk about baptism with somebody, I know there are people up here who would love that. But as we renew this baptismal covenant, I want you to remember your identity. A tomb, a womb, a portal. You have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You belong to Jesus. Thanks be to God.